Well, good evening, everyone. It's good to be with you here. It's great to worship the Lord alongside you. If we've not met, my name is Paul Matthews, uh, and I'm going to begin uh, this sermon in prayer. So please pray with me. Father God, we thank you that you have placed your Son, Jesus Christ, on the throne, overlooking all things with all glory and power and dominion. Lord, I pray that we leave tonight with a bigger picture of Christ than we came with. I pray that we, came, we leave more prepared to live for his glory uh, than when we came in. Lord, we need you to effect change in our hearts, and we pray you do that now. In the name of King Jesus himself. Amen. So let me open then with a question. When you think about Jesus, what is it exactly that you are thinking about? So when someone says Jesus, what kind of images are you immediately pulling to mind? Now, the scriptures, of course, are full, aren't they, of stories about Jesus. So that might be where you immediately turn to. You, you picture uh, a Middle Eastern man in the Middle East with his Middle Eastern friends. And if you're thinking that far, uh, you've at least passed the first hurdle, which is uh, realizing that Jesus is a brown guy. Um, because I know there are many different paintings out there of Jesus as this uh, white European fair-skinned fellow. But uh, if, uh, if you're out of the loop, Jesus was about as, uh, uh, as white as I am black which is to say not very at all. We actually see in Philippians 2 that when Jesus came to her earth, he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of men. See, soul church, on earth, Jesus' glory was actually veiled. A local church recently had a sermon series saying that Jesus was God unmasked. And there is a sense in which that's true, isn't it? Like Jesus is God come to earth, God with flesh on, God among us. There is another sense, though, isn't there, where that's not true. Jesus is actually God emptied or God veiled while he is on earth. And I say this to show you that when we think of Jesus, we can't just think of his earthly ministry. Because that once humbled Messiah has now been exalted, hasn't he? If you saw him right now, it would not look like an inconspicuous Middle Eastern man. If you saw him right now, there's really two options for you. You'd probably fall on both your knees and worship him, or you would die at the sight of him, with the biblical data being more on the side of, uh, on the side of just dying. So you know a Jesus that heals, and you know a Jesus that helps and guides and loves. But tonight, as you walk out, those doors right there, I want you to know and to know in your bones a Jesus that reigns. He reigns as king over everything. And his reign is total and final and his kingdom is everlasting. I want you to walk out those doors tonight, Soul Church, knowing that Jesus is Lord. Not just Lord of our hearts. Not just Lord of heaven. He is the Lord full stop. The authority above which there is no authority. The judge above which there is no second court of appeal. Jesus is the Lord and he reigns. He's the Lord with no leftovers and no remainders and he reigns over heaven and earth right now. So that's my big idea tonight. Jesus, the Lord Jesus, reigns. And to look at that, what we're going to do is we're going to skip pretty quickly through three passages of scriptures, the one that we've already read. And I think more than most sermons, this sermon is going to cover a lot of ground. So we're not going to be slowly walking through a text and examining the beauty. We'll be flying overhead. Uh, and to do that, we're going to need to go at pace. And we're going to start with our passage in Acts chapter 1. 
Let me read that again. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. See, with this reading, we come straight to the final frame of Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus has already lived his perfect life in full obedience to God's law. He died his death on the cross so that everyone who believes would have eternal life. He died, he rose again, triumphing over sin and death and the devil. And now he ascends into heaven. And note that very interesting detail in verse 9. It was a cloudy day. You may be thinking, well, why on earth did the Holy Spirit through Luke see fit to record the fact it was a cloudy day? Well, I hope to show you in just a moment that I think that's actually one of the most important parts of the passage. Uh, And to do that, we're going to go straight to our second reading, Daniel 7. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven came there one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. So he had the clouds in Acts 1. Remember I said that was an important detail. Notice in Daniel 7.13, when the Son of Man appears, he appears with the clouds. So we've got Acts 1, clouds, Daniel 7, clouds, and I think here is the important detail, Soul Church. They're the same clouds. See, this is a scene of Jesus receiving complete dominion, and it happened 2,000 years ago, right after he ascended. That's where this is in the timeline. Jesus ascended from earth in Acts 1. He went straight up into the throne room in Daniel 7 and was crowned the undisputed and unrivaled Lord over everyone and everything. See, this is not a prophecy for us. For us, this is history. This has happened. And because of his coronation 2,000 years ago, Jesus now reigns with a rule that's both extensive and intensive. Extensive in that it extends to the whole created order. Right from your backyard to the most remote star in the last galaxy in the universe, Christ sits on his throne. He exercises dominion over the lot of it. And his authority is also intensive, isn't it? Down to every atom, every molecule, it's a property of Jesus. Because he lived and died and rose and ascended to the throne, there is now nothing that escapes his rule. While Australia may have the appearance of being a representative democracy. It's actually not, is it, when you think about it? It's a monarchy, and the king is King Jesus. America looks like a republic. China looks like it's up to its eyeballs in communism. But they're all monarchies, aren't they? And King Jesus rules them all. See, when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just come to rescue souls He actually came for the whole world. I wonder if you've thought about that. We have a reading here in Colossians, chapter 1. 
For in him, referring to Christ, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So have a good look at that text. Everything has been reconciled to God. All of heaven, all of earth. Jesus didn't just come for our souls. Jesus came for everything. And he got it on the cross. All things have been reconciled to God through Christ. And that for us, friends, is not a future hope. It's actually a present reality. The American pastor, Douglas Wilson, he says, when the devil was tempting Jesus, I don't know if you remember that story, where he's saying, look, all you need to do, you need to bow the knee to me, that's all you've got to do, I'll give you the world's kingdoms and all of their glory. Jesus didn't refuse him because he didn't want the kingdoms. Jesus refused him because he didn't want them that way. Jesus didn't want to steal what he was determined to earn. Jesus was coming for the world and its kingdoms, and the devil knew it, so he tried to lie and cheat. But now, Jesus isn't a puppet king because of a shady backroom deal with the devil. Jesus is the legitimate king because of his death, resurrection, ascension, and coronation. So we see in our first text, Acts 1, Jesus Christ ascends. In the second text we see here, we've just read in Daniel, he's given everlasting dominion and glory. And that brings us to our third passage that we're going to look at, where we ask the question, well, what's Christ going to do with this kingdom? What's he going to do with this throne? And we go to Psalm 110 for this. Many have argued, by the way, that this is God's favourite psalm. I don't know if you know that. It's because it's a psalm that's quoted most often. It's a Bible passage that's quoted most often from the Old Testament in the New Testament. Uh, so you'll remember it. You'll remember this first verse at least. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. And what we're particularly looking at here is verse 1. David here, the psalmist, is writing uh, about an intra-Trinitarian conversation that's taking place. God the Father is speaking with God the Son. And he's, God the Father is inviting God the Son to sit in the place of power and authority at his right hand. And that's, that's very similar. It's a very similar event to the one we saw in Daniel chapter 7, just before. But what this passage tells us all about, actually, is what kind of king Jesus will be. Because there have been some pretty ordinary kings, haven't there? There have just been some real shockers over the years. So it's, it's not automatically good news that there's a king on the throne. The real question is, well, what kind of king is he going to be? What, what's he like? What's his plan? What's he going to do? In short, this is what the reign of Christ will be like. He's a good king and he will overcome every evil. Every rebel power on this world will be put under his foot. And this also, by the way, this psalm gives us some very interesting information about the, when the world is going to end, doesn't it? This world will not be drawn to a close until Jesus' enemies are under his feet. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. I think uh, Paul was probably riffing off this psalm. 1 Corinthians 15. Then comes the end when he, Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign, this is the important part, he must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed 
is death. So that's a very clear passage about the end of the world, isn't it? And it should give you hope, soul church. And I'm going to touch on this more later. But the end of the world is not going to be catastrophic. Jesus, King Jesus, is going to destroy every rule, every authority, every power that opposes him. Not just heavenly authorities, earthly authorities too. And then he'll return. We look around the world and there are many rebel powers, aren't they? You don't have to watch the news for too long to see there are still many rebel powers. There are some theologians who think we're actually still in the early church period. The future, though, it looks bright, doesn't it? Jesus is in the process of subduing his enemies and growing his kingdom. And we know how he grows it. We had a sermon on it recently. He grows his kingdom, that kingdom that will take over like leaven through a loaf or like a small seed growing into the largest tree. Slowly, slowly, better and better. So we learn that the Messiah is going to be victorious all the way back, actually, in Genesis 3. I don't know if you remember this passage, but this victorious Messiah, it's a big idea throughout all of scriptures. We see here Genesis 3, after the sin of Adam and Eve, God curses the serpent, the devil. And this is what he says. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. So what kind of king? is Jesus going to be? He's going to be a head-crushing king. Jesus is the head-crusher. He sits on the throne right now, and he's, having, he's in the process of turning all his enemies into a stool for his feet. That's what his reign looks like. He's good, he's powerful, and he will exercise his rule and dominion for the purpose of defeating his enemies. That's what it means for Jesus to reign. So that's, uh, that's a quick tour of three main scriptures that I think deal very well with this idea of the current reign and lordship of Christ. Acts 1, he descends, having completed his earthly ministry. Daniel 7, he enters the throne room. He receives glory and power and dominion. Psalm 110, he rules until the end, putting all his enemies under his feet. Now that we've uh, painted that picture, I'm going to move into a period of application. Some sermons have very specific pointed application, like a sniper taking you out. It hits you all in the same spot. This is going to be very different. This will be like uh, pellets in a shotgun. There's a whole bunch. Some preachers call this the spray and pray method. There's just like five things here. and You just send it all out and just hope some of it hits. I'm sure it will. I hope what the one or two or five of these things uh, are beneficial and useful for you. So the first point of application here tonight, Soul Church, how do we apply this doctrine? Well, we tell ourselves a better story. Okay, Tell ourselves a better story. Our lives are a story. The history of this world is a story. We exist in the narrative that God himself is writing. God's people need to understand what kind of story they're in. Our story is about victory and triumph. Our story is about the Lord, our Saviour, bringing all his enemies under his feet. Christians should be optimists. Because we don't know what the future will bring, do we? But we do know who the king is going to be. Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth, is Lord today, and he will be Lord tomorrow and the day after that until he returns to judge the living and the dead. 
as Christians, we should have an unflinching and steadfast belief that God is using every circumstance for our good and the good of his church. This, of course, comes from a very famous passage. I'm sure many of you have this committed to memory, Romans 8:28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, who are called according to his purpose. See, friends, brothers and sisters, your story, like any story, will have its ups and downs. But unlike most other stories, we know that every up and every down is for your good. God is a master storyteller, and he causes our lives to unfold in such a way that it will always be for our benefit. Our life is not the sort of bleak and gritty story that fizzles out uneventfully. God is the master storyteller. And we're actually made in his image, aren't we? So we're st- storytellers, but we can tell ourselves the worst stories. I don't know if, you're, if you know anything about that. We can tell ourselves the worst stories. We tell ourselves stories that other people are always out to get us. No one cares about us. God himself has forgotten or neglected us or doesn't know us. We tell ourselves stories about always getting the raw end of the deal. So I exhort you, Christians, to remember the story you're in. A story of victory and triumph where every tragedy or every high point is for you and your good. You are part of the greatest story ever told, crafted by the greatest storyteller of all. So remind yourself about that story. Don't look out to the future and flinch. Don't be anxious. Look out with a very settled confidence, knowing that although you can't see the future, you don't need to because you can see the king and you know that the future belongs to him. So secondly, tell your children a better story. Tell your children a better story. I don't know if you can see that photo very well, but on Moses' top there, I got him a great little grow suit and it says, Big Optimist. And that's what I'm going to raise Moses to be along with my wife. He's going to be a big optimist and not just any kind of optimist. He's going to be a gospel optimist. Because my wife and I, and hopefully you too, will tell your children a better story. See, it's a God-given duty of parents to raise their children to fear God and to walk in his ways. We see that all through the scriptures. We even see that in the Apostle Paul in Ephesians. Uh, We see in Ephesians 6 verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So it is the calling of parents to nurture, disciple, educate their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And as the text says, ultimately that belongs to the father, that responsibility. The buck stops with him. So don't boil your children in the vat of pessimism. When you're discipling your children, make sure they know Jesus fed the 5,000, that he walked on water and that he died and rose again for their sins. But make sure they know that Jesus also ascended to heaven. And he's seated on the throne where he's been for the last 2,000 years as king of all things. They need to know that Jesus has a rightful claim over everyone and everything. Tell your children a better story. That Jesus, the head crusher, is bringing all his enemies under his feet. There are a lot of really good resources for this now. We exist in a great time where there's heaps of good stuff out there. The Reformed uh, churches of North America have a great sort of creed. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called The World Belongs to God. Here are the first six lines. As followers of Jesus Christ, 
living in this world, which some seek to control and others view with despair, we declare with joy and trust our world belongs to God. So we should teach our children this paragraph, shouldn't we? Your children will be confronted with a thousand stories about who they are, where they are, and what they're for. Everyone, I don't know if you know this, everyone is trying to tell your child what to think. If you don't try and teach them, then you will be the only one. Because everyone is trying to slide in there and tell them what to believe. Counter the rival stories your children are told by telling them the greatest story of all. Soak them in the good news of Christ, creator, saviour and Lord. And lastly, if you decide to partner with a school, if you decide to partner with a school in doing this, make sure your child is hearing the same story at home and at school. Now, Christian education is not cheap. Homeschooling sometimes isn't cheap. Legendary pastor uh, R.C. Sproul said something like this. He said, if you've got to sell your house to give your kids a Christian education, sell the house. We should pursue it as a matter of utmost priority. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Because the stakes are high. If your child spends the 20,000 hours of their education hearing a story where they are the king, or where the government's the king, or where there is no king, or where anyone can choose their own king, if they spend 20,000 hours hearing that, then don't be surprised if they start believing it. Raise your kids by telling them the better story. And if you send them to a school, send them to a school that tells them that story too. All right, my next piece of uh, application here is on prayer. So the Lordship of Jesus Christ should lead us to pray that the will of God will be done in every circumstance. So we should actually be praying, Christians, we should be praying for total obedience to King Jesus in the world right now, today. That's what we should be praying for. The people, families, nations, governments, corporations, everyone bows the knee today. We pray this, actually, because it's exactly what Jesus told us to pray. It's exactly what he told us to pray. Uh, you know the Lord's Prayer very well. We've been praying that together here at Soul Church recently. I wonder if you remember this part of the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. That's the third, third petition, the third thing we ask for in the Lord's Prayer. And this exemplar of a prayer given to us by Christ. The third thing we ask for is that we want God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now let me ask you this, Soul Church. To what extent do you think God's will is being done in heaven right now? It's a question that almost answers itself, doesn't it? Of course it's being completely done. God's will is never not being done in heaven. And Jesus tells us to pray that God's will would be done on earth in exactly the same way. Christians, having been assured of the victory of the kingdom of Christ, should pray daily that that kingdom would advance and grow with speed. See, I think there are some very pessimistic Christians out there. They're pessimistic about the state of the world and the state of the church. And they like, they, some of them revel in this idea that the Christianity is just going to get beaten from pillar to post, back and forth, get its backside handed to it constantly until God sort of raptures us out or 
brings us up out of, uh, into heaven. They live in this constant flinch, waiting for the knockout blow to come from the world. But actually, friends, our God who answers prayer, he's told us to be constantly praying, not just that persecution would slow down, not just we could have another 10 years, maybe, please, before we get carted off to the prison camps. He's told us to pray that the kingdom of his son would take over. We're not just to pray defensive prayers. Lord, please, let us not get beaten too badly today. We're actually go, to go on the offense with our prayers, aren't we? That's what we're told to pray for, that the kingdom of the Lord Jesus would take over this world. All right, my next point of application, uh, don't be anxious. It's a call against anxiety. If the statistics are to be believed, then we have unprecedented rates of anxiety in our society. And let me encourage you, with those of you who struggle with a particularly anxious disposition, to fight the temptation for anxiety by remembering Jesus is on the throne right now. See, we can often become quite anxious about our lives when we feel it's just hitting a tailspin and going completely out of control. But the great truth of the Scriptures is God's control. God's always in control, isn't he? Jesus is always the Lord. Rather than just trying to fix everything all the time or manage all the variables, we should follow the words of the Apostle Paul, Philippians. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So there's the, the call to trust in God, Christians. He's in control. Even when we aren't, we should be quick to pray. As a very quick aside on that note, there is kind of a, there is a species of anxiety that you can actually just fix by being organised. I don't know if you know that. You can just fix it. You can just do something about it. I know I've, I've felt a little bit anxious as a teenager because I was always forgetting things. I was always running late. And I actually didn't need hours and hours of prayer before the throne for that. I actually needed a diet in the high school clock. So I'm actually really glad God didn't take away that anxiety that I had in high school because it was actually just a sign for me that I wasn't doing something very well with my life. I was just living unwisely. So all that to say, if you're feeling anxious, the answer isn't only ever just prayer. Have a good look at your life. See if you're living wisely. And if that's the case, if, if you're living unwisely, we can change that behavior. For example, if you're always anxious and you always feel so taxed and so overworked and that's leading you to feel anxious, God will probably not take away that anxiety. It's actually a gift. It's a gift from God. He's telling you you need to do less things. Exercise wisdom when we battle anxiety. So don't, don't be anxious. Jesus is Lord. He sits on the throne. He's got it all under control. And this is my last point of application here. And this is to do with reaching the lost for Jesus, the topic of evangelism. As Christians, it's very easy for us to get evangelism wrong, I think, especially in what many commentators are calling a post-Christian society. As Christians, uh, we have a heart for sharing the good news. I, I know you all here. I know most of you, and I know many of us, desperately do want to share the good news with unbelieving family members or 
those around us, those in our workplaces, our neighbours and, and such. There is a text for that, isn't there? It's a great commission from Matthew 28. Have a look at this. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's a great commission. And my question for you tonight, actually, Soul Church, is, is that the Great Commission? Is that it? Have a look. Have I fiddled with that? Have I rearranged that? Have a look. You probably have memorised it. It's not wrong. It's just actually incomplete. It's just partial at the moment. And the, probably the key to that is the second word there, therefore. Of course, you all know that whenever you see a therefore in the Scriptures, you're meant to ask, well, what's the therefore, therefore? Let me have a look. I'll, I'll, I'll take you to the actual Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. Do you see the difference? Do you see? When we think about making disciples, soul church, it's not enough to go. We must therefore go. We must go because... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. Jesus here is saying to his disciples, guys, I am the king. I am the king of heaven and on, of earth. There is no authority that reaches further than mine. There is no power that reaches higher than mine. Now, go and make disciples. So it's not enough to go. We must therefore go. See, sometimes we can get that quite wrong. I've been there a thousand times. We can treat Jesus as if he's our awkward friend at the party and we're kind of introducing him. We're going, ah, yes, I know, I know you don't really like him. I know he's not so good at first impressions. I, I kind of get that. But I reckon if you guys just gave him the time, you'd see he's a pretty cool kind of guy. To which Jesus, I think, looks down from his throne. And he says, what do you mean, pretty cool kind of guy? He's saying, I'm the king. Why are you apologizing for me? Isn't it true that when we evangelize without remembering that all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus, our efforts can be just doomed from the start. If we ask people to come to Jesus because he's interesting, they'll leave when they lose interest. If we ask people to come because he's exciting, they'll leave when they find something else more exciting. If we ask people to come to Jesus because he'll give them what they want, then they'll leave when they don't get what they want. We must be very clear, mustn't we? When you come to Jesus, you come to a king. Yes, he, he's a king who loves you, a king who draws you in and wants to be in relationship with you. But he's a king. Jesus is not a politician who needs your vote. Jesus doesn't need us. We need Jesus. We should not call people to follow Jesus by acting like they'd actually be doing him a huge favour if they followed Jesus. Jesus is the one that does the favour, isn't he? We get salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. That's a very good deal. That's a very big gift. So when we call people to follow Jesus, let's be clear about who's doing who the favour. So in, in summary, in our evangelism, the lordship of Christ must be central. Don't be ashamed of him. Don't apply makeup where you think other people are going to see blemishes. Jesus doesn't need to be beautified or apologised for. He's the king and he just needs to be proclaimed. So when you think about Jesus, brothers and sisters, what do you think about? 
What immediately comes to mind? What images are you pulling up? It's my hope that you don't just think about Jesus and his earthly ministry, but you're able to bring to mind that Jesus has been on the throne for the last 2,000 years and he will remain on the throne until he returns to judge the living and the dead. And meanwhile, he'll be putting enemies under his feet. I hope that you are very quick now to think about Jesus with his glory and splendor. And I've only just very quickly applied that doctrine. You could do a 10-part series on this easily. I urge you to continue to pass out those truths in your conversations tonight. But I, definitely, I exhort you, Soul Church, as you walk out the doors tonight, that you not only resolve to think like that, but to live your entire life in light of the reign of the Lord Jesus. Let me pray. Father God, your Son, Jesus Christ, is on the throne. We're sorry for when we've had thoughts of a small Christ who's come merely for a prey that we hold. Lord, we thank you. He came for the world. He got it. And Lord, I pray that we would think of Christ high, lifted up, exalted and reigning. Lord, please give us the courage and discipline to live in light of all these truths. We pray this all in his magnificent name. Amen.